Hyperglycemia and the critically ill. How can we best get patients' blood sugars under control? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD, your host. And with me today is Dr. Brian S. Smith, PharmD, Director of Education and Clinical Services in the Pharmacy Department at UMass Memorial Medical Center and Chair of UMass's Glycemic Control Task Force. Dr. Smith is also a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist and an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Graduate School of Nursing in Worcester. Dr. Smith, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Smith, I'd like to start off by asking, would you describe your clinical role at your institution? What, what is it that you do? In addition to my other responsibilities, I am, one, a clinical specialist in the neurosurgical trauma-intensive care unit. So I perform daily patient care rounds with the ICU team and make a host of recommendations related to pharmacotherapy. In addition, especially relevant to this topic, I help lead the hospital's initiative to ensure tight glycemic control in our uh, critically ill adult patients. What do you see as maybe the three or four largest global medication-related challenges facing clinicians in the ICU? Some of the things that we've really tried to focus on are, are those medication challenges that have been shown to really improve outcomes. And so I think glycemic control is one of those things that is really a challenge to achieve. It's, it's easy to say, let's control someone's glucose, but in critically ill patients, that can be a big challenge. I think other things from a medication standpoint is uh, sedation management, trying to incorporate things like daily wake-ups to minimize time on ventilators and get people moving through the health system more safely and with less complications. I think another big challenge is infection control, and not only infection control, but also treating a lot of these emerging resistant pathogens. So I think that's another really big challenge on how to minimize antibiotics, but also to make sure that you're adequately treating those patients that actually do have infection. Could you briefly talk about the importance of glycemic control in the, in the ICU setting? Why, why exactly is it that it's so important? Well, starting actually back to the 50s and 60s, there has been data to suggest that hyperglycemia is associated with poor patient outcomes. And there's been numerous trials to demonstrate that relationship. And then throughout the 80s, there had been various studies looking at glucose, insulin, and potassium solutions with the thought that insulin in of itself might have some therapeutic properties that were protective. But then people started looking at the other side of the equation in that maybe it's the control of the glucose that's the key issue. And really in 2001 with the first Vandenberg trial in surgical ICU population where they demonstrated a significant mortality benefit from tight glucose control versus those who did not have it. And then since then, there's been a second Vandenberg trial and some other studies in this area. But that's kind of what kicked it all off, the fact that it seems to improve mortality and have significant morbidity benefits as well. As chair of UMass's Glycemic Control Task Force at your institution, you've played a large role in the effort to get critically ill patients' blood sugars within an acceptable range. Since taking the reins on that initiative, what do you feel like you've learned along the way that maybe you didn't know before? Are there any pearls that you could share? Yeah, well, I think the, the biggest thing, and it may not be a, a big surprise to folks, but it's, it's really a giant team effort. The fact that we have very strong support from our chair of our critical care committee, Dr. Richard Irwin, and administrator, Willis Chandler, they've really given me the authority and the support to really involve all disciplines in this project. So pharmacists help to play a large role. Our attendings, our intensivists play a large role. The house staff, NPs, we're getting input from nutrition. We've had stuff from people from the lab getting involved. Nurses play a massive role. And some of the things that we really didn't consider going into it that I think people should consider is things like, do you have enough glucometers if you're going to be increasing the number of finger sticks you're doing? Is the lab prepared to handle the volume of increased values if things are going to be sent to the lab? 
you have the support system to do data monitoring to track your own performance. So I think having a really good team, getting everyone on board, and then being able to anticipate some of these other unexpected things as well. And presumably education is also a key piece, education of all those players. Uh, How big a challenge is that? It's a huge challenge. And what we've really learned, and I think this is probably another key thing to keep in mind, is that it doesn't begin or end. It's continuous. And so what a lot of data on education will show is that you do an initiative, you educate, you have very good adherence or compliance, and then that fades over time. Um, So initial education is important, but you need to do it on a continuous and ongoing basis. We basically do ongoing rounds on a quarterly basis where we have the entire team, physicians, pharmacists, nurses from our critical care operations committee going to every ICU, meeting with the bedside providers, meeting with the nurses, getting feedback and continually educating, but at the same time getting that good feedback and redesigning our protocol. So we probably make modifications to our protocol at least yearly based upon this feedback. So the education is ongoing, but also getting the feedback from the individuals actually using it to improve the protocol. Switching gears for just a moment, how does one adjust an insulin drip? What sort of factors do we need to take into account? Well, I'd say the best way to adjust it is very carefully. There are a a whole host of factors to consider when making adjustments to insulin. And I think one of the biggest key driving forces is the monitoring of blood glucose. So checking a glucose and then reacting to that number, making a change in the insulin infusion, and then rechecking again. Intravenous insulin acts differently than subcutaneous insulin in the fact that you don't have that delayed subcutaneous absorption effect. So the half-life of IV insulin is is probably, you know, five minutes or so. So after making a change to a drip rate, you would anticipate seeing the maximal effects of that probably within 20 minutes. So there's the insulin component to it, but also some patient-specific factors such as underlying disease states, degree of critical illness, nutritional intake, intravenous sources of dextrose, corticosteroids. There really are a whole host of factors that all come together that will make the insulin requirements go higher, go lower, but it really comes down to very good monitoring and continuous adjustment to meet the patient's needs. You mentioned some differences between IV and sub-Q insulin. What do you do at your institution, or what do you take into account when you're transitioning patients from an insulin drip to sub-Q insulin? Well, I think there's a number of factors to consider when switching from intravenous insulin to subcutaneous. One is, what is their recent usage pattern of the intravenous insulin infusion? We typically don't like to see a lot of fluctuation prior to the change. We like to see that it's relatively stable within a unit per hour or so for the last six hours. And then we take that requirement and calculate a total daily requirement and then divide that between a long-acting insulin and a short-acting insulin. At the same time, we consider what their nutritional intake is. Are they on continuous tube feeds versus eating three meals a day? Also taking into consideration if there's changes that we can anticipate within starting steroids, stopping steroids, or changing of steroid doses. So there's a number of factors that you need to carefully balance into that transition. But if you can try to control for those factors, then it's just a matter of doing a little bit of calculations. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Smith from UMass Memorial Medical Center. We've been discussing practical aspects of glycemic control in the intensive care setting. Dr. Smith, you talked about transitioning patients from IV to sub-Q insulin. You'd said that one factor that might make you more wary about transitioning someone is fairly wide fluctuations in insulin requirements. Should a patient stay longer in an ICU because they're on an insulin drip or because their insulin requirements are fluctuating? I think it's something to consider, but it's difficult to say that 
automatically a patient should be required to remain in the ICU because of insulin requirements because many hospitals do have a lot of patient care flow needs. And if there's a patient that has a much more severe level of critical illness that needs a bed in the ICU, sometimes you do need to be flexible in terms of who you move out and you have to pick the patients who are less critically ill. But if possible, we usually like to try to see that a patient is a little bit more stable on intravenous insulin before switching to subcutaneous. The concern would be as if that they're having fluctuations and your insulin drip is temporarily up high and you convert based upon that high number, you may overshoot when you convert to a subcutaneous regimen. If you needed to send a patient out of the ICU and there were still some fluctuations in their intravenous infusion, depending upon the institution, some institutions will allow, within certain limitations, insulin infusions on acute care floors. Or if you needed to convert to a subcutaneous regimen, I would consider being a little bit more conservative in that. So you have to balance the risk of causing hypoglycemia At the same time, we don't like to see patients' blood glucoses going wildly out of control by simply just shutting off the insulin infusion and shipping them out, and they hit the floor and their blood glucoses go into the 3 and 400 level. That's not good for patient care as well. Your institution has developed a glycemic control protocol, and embedded within it is a dosing algorithm. And you had spoken about some of the challenges, in the beginning at least, of education in rolling out the protocol. What are some of the current challenges you face now that the protocol has been around for a little while? The current thing that we're focusing on now is, one, we've noticed that there's a group of patients within the ICUs, particularly in our cardiothoracic surgery population, who get extubated pretty quickly, continue to require elevated amounts of insulin intravenously, but resume a PO diet. And the PO diet presents a particular challenge because essentially you're giving three carbohydrate boluses throughout the day it's very difficult to titrate an infusion up and down to mimic those boluses of of carbohydrate with an oral diet, like three meals a day. And so what we're doing now is incorporating an additional piece to our algorithm to give a proportionately sized subcutaneous dose of rapid-acting insulin in in correlating to the size of the meal that the patient's going to eat. That way we're not chasing blood glucoses due to mealtime spikes with a drip but we can mimic those mealtime curves of the carbohydrate load, the glucose increases, with the subcutaneous rapid-acting insulin. And we've piloted that in a number of patients and found that to be much more successful than trying to titrate a drip. The other piece we're finding some difficulties with is getting clinicians familiar with how to calculate subcutaneous requirements from the IV drip rate, that is the whole transition algorithm. And so we've actually come up with some standardized algorithms based upon common drip rates that we're adding to the backside of our protocol. So anytime someone wants to try to convert someone to a subcutaneous regimen, it will provide them kind of a bunch of pre-calculated options to minimize the chance for error. So you'd mentioned the difficulties of taking into account enteral nutrition, specifically meals rather than tube feeds. And I realize that your updated protocol may be in the works, but do you have any recommendations for the listeners as far as taking a look at a patient's insulin infusion and and using that to uh, to calculate what their insulin requirement might be for mealtime boluses of nutrition? Yeah, right now we've been working closely with our dietary department, and we're going to try to implement a form of carbohydrate counting. And we're still negotiating a little bit, but we're thinking for patients who eat the equivalent of one carbohydrate, which will be about 15 grams of carbs, so that would account for one. So 15 or less, we're going to give a subcutaneous bolus at one time the current infusion rate. If they eat around two carbohydrates, so about 30 grams, then we're going about two times the current infusion rate. And if they eat more than two carbohydrates, so we're talking 
30 to 45 grams or more of carbohydrate in the meal, then we're going to go with four times the current infusion rate. Just to give a quick example, if the patient were to be on an insulin infusion at two units per hour, and then they ate a full meal, which let's say contained four carbs, we would multiply the two units per hour times four because they ate a full meal with multiple carbs in it. That would give us a dose of about eight units of rapid-acting insulin. So we would continue the drip rate at two units an hour. Once they finished their full meal, we would give them eight units of rapid-acting insulin subcutaneously times one, and then continue to follow glucoses and uh, adjust as needed. Dr. Brian Smith has been our guest in our discussion of the importance of glycemic control in the ICU setting. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and you've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thanks for listening.